seems appropriate that today, St. Michael and All Angels Day, we should turn our attention from knowing ourselves to knowing our enemy. You probably know of the <clears throat> great General Montgomery during the Second World War when he was fighting his enemy, led by General Rommel, always had a photograph of Rommel in his caravan with him to remind him of his enemy. I don't think I want to suggest that we have a photograph <laughs> of old Nick on our mantelpiece. But nevertheless, I believe it's of great importance that we uh, recognize who our ultimate enemy is and come to understand something of his strategies he works against us, against us. Here, of course, the Church of England faces a fairly major problem because there are quite large numbers of our leaders who don't even believe in Satan's existence. And uh, again, I would remind you of that scripture in which the Lord Jesus said of the Sadducees, they know neither the, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I think that as we examine the scriptures, we become very convinced through reading the scriptures that for the Lord Jesus Christ, the existence of Satan and the power of Satan was very real. If you have problems with the authority and inspiration of scripture, then another way to discover the presence and the power and the sheer uh, in the presence of Satan, I believe, is to know something of the power of God. And many people I know who have doubted the existence of Satan soon come to know of that existence once they have begun to experience the mighty power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because as the experience of Jesus, when he was anointed with the power of the Spirit and was immediately uh, thrust out by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by Satan. So all of us, I believe, who know that power of the Spirit in our lives, know that very soon we come face to face with another power, the power of Satan. I believe it's very important for us to come back and to look again at this uh, subject of the power of Satan because I see in many areas of what we call the charismatic renewal, now we begin to see some of the satanic counterfeits and satanic activities on a fairly massive scale. So all the more important that on St. Michael and All Angels Day we come to see the power of Satan, but also much more important that we realize that Satan is a defeated foe and that Jesus Christ is on his throne and the angels of God are round about us to protect us and guide us and keep us so we don't have to be fearful. Now in 2 Corinthians <coughs> there are a number of references to the activity of Satan and I want to draw your attention to five of these, Satan's activities in five areas of life. The first one, which we find in chapter 2, is the area of human relationships. <coughs> verse 5, I'll read from verse 5. But if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to you all. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, 
or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, to keep Satan from gaining the advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I believe, unfortunately, we often seem to be ignorant of the, divine, of the designs of Satan. And perhaps more than any other area today, the area of our relationships to one another is an area of spiritual battle in which Satan in all kinds of ways seeks to take advantage of us. In our working through of the difficulties that develop in human relationships, I believe there are two uh, areas. One is the human area where we have to work through in forgiveness and understanding and so on. But then over it all is the power of Satan seeking all the time to make things so much worse than they need be. We've just been passing through, and maybe we will have to continue to pass through, a very difficult patch in what is known as the charismatic renewal. There have been some very significant divisions in churches, even well-known churches like St. Michael Le Belfry and uh, Millmead Baptist Church in Guildford, in which people, groups, have left the churches and formed new churches. Uh, an Anglican minister who was with us this time last year, so I'm told, has now left the Church of England and taken his church with him. And that's just only recently happened. So we are in the midst of all kinds of new tensions, tensions with the house churches, uh, tensions over the issue of rebaptism, and this is a fertile area for Satan to get the advantage over us. And I believe we need to resist this in every way possible. I think if we can uh, think of it in terms of wounds, and there are many wounded people around this country who are, I've talked with, who are involved in some of these divisions. Lots of hurts, lots of wounded people around. Now, wounds are of different uh, dimensions, and our reaction to those wounds will be different. If we get a very slight scratch, we probably don't necessarily rush off and put germline on it or whatever we do these days or put even band-aid on it. But the bigger the abrasion, the deeper the wound, the more careful we have to be to see that antiseptics are applied and there is a sufficient covering in order that that wound can heal naturally without being infected with germs. And I think in the problems which we face in human relationships, whether it's in our marriages, in our churches with our uh, PCCs and church wardens and so on, or in this more difficult area where we're confronted with issues like uh, rebaptism and division in relationship to the house churches, I believe we need to see that these wounds can be a great opportunity <coughs> for Satan to put in his germs <clears throat> to make things so much worse. And therefore I believe the Lord uh, requires of us uh, a way by which we can instead put in the antiseptics into these wounds and also see that they are covered. 
And the God-given antiseptic, I believe, is the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross. <coughs> and that is something which I believe we need to learn more and more about in these days, that, the, that, that if we want to have fellowship with, uh, with the Lord and with the Lord's people, then we need to know a great deal more about the antiseptic quality of the blood of Christ. But the other, and I think we can think of this, if you like, as the covering, because some of these wounds take years to heal. And all through that period of those years, there is an opportunity to, for Satan to take advantage of us. And the covering, I believe, is mentioned in this passage, and that's forgiveness, to forgive one another. And my experience of this, and I'm sure it must be true of you all, as I'm speaking to you this morning, is that we need to go on forgiving. And the deeper the wound and the greater the hurt to us, the more frequently we have to forgive. Keep on going back again and again, bringing that person or that situation before the Lord and saying, Lord, I forgive, I forgive. And we have to do it, I believe, sometimes every day for sometimes years on end until that wound is finally healed. And that's what Paul is talking about here because this was an open wound in the church in Corinth. This was probably the man who had committed incest and had repented now of it and had been forgiven. And there may well have been a period of some time, almost certainly was, in which, of course, other people in the church were affected by this. And what Paul is saying here, let's forgive because forgiveness enables that wound to heal properly. I think that's very important that we, we see that. So first of all then in, in human relationships. Then secondly, if we go on to chapter 4, we see <coughs> a mention there of the air of evangelism. Chapter 4, verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world or as Jesus once called him the prince of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. I was talking last week to some of the men who are involved now in the planning of the visit of Billy Graham to this country in 1984. I was talking to Brian Mills and Tom Houston about this visit. Brian Mills told me that at the present time the whole organization of the Billy Graham thing is very much under attack. He said satanic attack. Some of their men who are involved in it have had car accidents uh, recently um, and uh, also one of their leaders in the north of England was drowned during the summer. And it seems as if here we see something of the spiritual warfare that we're all going to have to go through as I believe we want the Lord wants us unitedly to come behind this visit of Billy in 1984. And as we see this, we see this spiritual battle because the God of this world, Satan, does not want people in this country to believe in Christ. And so he blinds their eyes. And there's a particular focus, I believe, we need for prayer in this matter. During the last summer when I was in the United States, I went to the cinema there, or the theatre as they call it, and saw a film that is now the biggest selling film that has ever, ever been. And it is coming to England in December. And it will be the biggest ever film here in this country. It's a very remarkable film, a very beautiful film. It's called E.T. 
ET stands for extraterrestrial. And the story briefly is that there are three, a family with their three children in the family, and one of the boys discovers in a wood an extraterrestrial being who he calls ET. And he lures this being into his home by leaving a trail of Smarties on the ground. Because <laughs> apparently extraterrestrial beings are very fond of Smarties. <laughs> well, when you see the film, you will immediately begin to notice that there is Christian symbolism throughout this film. And uh, E.T. himself is eventually captured by scientists and done to death. He is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven in a spaceship. And as the spaceship goes up, you'll see there's a rainbow uh, in the sky. So there are all kinds of, of Christian symbolism. E.T. also has healing gifts and heals the little boy when he cuts his finger instantly. And the reason I'm telling you this is because, uh, to me, it's remarkable that so many people, not just children, children flock to see this film, because it's about children, but also grown-ups are going, and there are thousands and thousands, some of them go two or three times to see it. To me, it's a great encouragement, because although there are aspects of E.T. that are certainly not like Christ at all, nevertheless, here we see a being from outside of this world coming into the world, exercising a loving ministry, healing the sick, being put to death by sinful men, being raised from the dead, and ascending up into heaven. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people in America are flocking to see that. And to me, it's a tremendous challenge to us as Christians that we have something that is far more wonderful than that to talk about. We have a message that is the truth, and that's not, E.T. isn't true. And I believe it's an encouragement to think that there are, in all these millions of people who are going to see that film, there is a yearning for someone to come from outer space and rescue us. And someone has come, hallelujah, in Jesus. And when you see this and feel this and get into this, you begin to see how powerful the effect of Satan is upon the minds of people that they cannot see and they cannot understand and they cannot believe the gospel. All the more important that we see this as spiritual warfare today. And that the God of this world can be overcome by the power of God. People's eyes can be opened to see the wonder of the gospel. Now the third area is we find in chapter 10, which I've called spiritual warfare. <coughs> I'll just read the first four verses of chapter 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of acting in a worldly fashion. For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. It would seem from uh, that passage, when you think that, the, remember that the previous chapter 9 is about the collection that Paul is involved in, collecting money from the Macedonian churches to relieve the needs of the church in, in Jerusalem, 
When you see that, then it may well be that what Paul is really talking about here is that in the church in Corinth, in which there were probably large numbers of rumors circulating about Paul, as we detect from other things he says in this letter, that one of the rumors circulating is that really Paul was uh, so uh, anxious to get this money and was pocketing, pocketing it himself. He was an embezzler. That's one suggestion, I think, that, uh, that he was acting in a very worldly fashion. It could have been that. Perhaps more likely is that people were accusing him, because these people in Corinth were so very super-spiritual, they were accusing Paul of being very worldly in getting involved in what we now call stewardship. That's another suggestion, and probably a more likely one, I think. But what Paul does here, he takes that, those sort of rumors that were going around that he was acting in a worldly fashion. And he said, no, that's not true. Because our conflict, the battle we're involved in, in the church and in the world, is not worldly. It's a spiritual battle. And therefore, if we're in a spiritual battle, then the weapons we need to employ are spiritual weapons and not carnal or worldly weapons. It's a spiritual battle we are involved in. I don't want to say anything here about stewardship, but just a little, just to say this one thing, that I'm sure that our experience, uh, and one sees this everywhere, that really stewardship, the financial needs of ministry today, is a spiritual matter. It's not a carnal matter. And the, spirit, the way in which the money is going to come in is going to come through spiritual means, not through carnal methods of raising money. And the spiritual weapon that God has placed in our hands, which we often forget because it sounds so simple, is the weapon of prayer. Uh, no doubt you, you know about the great church, supposed to be the largest church in the, in the world, Yongi Cho's church in Korea, you may not have heard that he has apparently now left his denomination, the Assemblies of God. And when you think that his church was four times larger than his denomination, <laughs> whether he's left the denomination or the denomination's left him <laughs> is a moot point. But when you read about that church and you read about their methods, some of which are very helpful, I believe, I think people often forget that the real power behind that church is prayer. I think we can learn more about that church than anything else, of this extraordinary way in which groups of people uh, go off and don't just pray for an hour or two, but pray for days on end, fasting and praying. And I'm quite convinced that that is one of the principal weapons that God is using in the building of, up of that very remarkable church. The fourth area I want to draw your attention to is in chapter 11, which is the area of teaching. I'll read the first six verses of chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure bride to her one husband. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and preaches another Jesus than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, 
or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you submit to it readily enough. I think that I am not in the least inferior to those superlative apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not in knowledge. In every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Well, verse 6, I think, is an encouragement to preachers. Apparently Paul didn't have a very good reputation as a preacher. Uh, but he did pretty well through it. But the context here is the context of teaching. And what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians, he's warning them about the satanic deceptions. He said his care and his concern, his worry, is that the simplicity of their understanding of the gospel was being perverted by false teachers in the church in Corinth. Very interesting the way he puts it. He talks about a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And I believe that what Paul says there about the church in Corinth is a warning to the church throughout all ages. That there is that simple understanding of the gospel of Christ which can be so easily perverted by these different gospels, these different messages. And I believe we're living in times like that at the moment. What is this other Jesus? It would seem to me from a study of the history of the church that we find that in different ages you tend to get a different emphasis in relationship to the nature of Christ. Sometimes there's a strong emphasis on the humanity of Christ. Sometimes there's a strong emphasis on the deity of Christ. And we can be very easily deceived into preaching about another Jesus by overemphasizing one aspect of his nature or the other. Now there are some, I believe, in our church who do emphasize almost to exclusion the humanity of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus. Whilst there are others, particularly in the charismatic movement, I believe, who overemphasize the triumphant aspects of the life of Christ, the Lordship of Jesus. And I believe if we overemphasize one over against the other, then we will be not knowing the real Jesus. We shall be preaching and proclaiming and knowing a different Jesus to the true Jesus, who was truly and fully human, at one and the same time as being fully and truly divine. And then Paul speaks about this different spirit. It would seem from his teaching here and elsewhere that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to unite, to unify God's people. Quite clearly, in the church in Corinth, there were many divisions. Divisions on personalities, on different views of doctrine and so on. And quite obviously, the church was very, being very much disrupted by this. And so here he talks about a different spirit from the Holy Spirit, a spirit of divisiveness, a spirit of division. And I've already mentioned to you, and I'm sure we're all very aware of this kind of divisiveness, which is very much abroad at the present time. The unity that we once enjoyed in the charismatic renewal has been seriously disrupted in recent years. And one has to say about it, is this the same Holy Spirit that we once knew? Or is this a different spirit that is abroad today? A spirit that is leading some into a very exclusive view of themselves and of their activities, as if they're the only people who have the spirits. 
And I believe if Paul was writing to us, he would say very similar words. This is a different spirit to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit always unites. And then also he speaks here about a different gospel. What is this different gospel that is being preached? I wonder again whether there isn't something here that we need to learn. That there has been again, through the charismatic movement, an emphasis which has been long neglected in the church on the supernatural signs and wonders as evidence of the gospel power. It's clearly indicated in the Acts of the Apostles and other times in church history that when God uh, wants to give evidence of the power and the reality of the gospel, he gives signs and wonders. But then also, indeed at the very heart of the gospel, is I believe the cross of Christ. The gospel is a call to repentance, because we need to be forgiven. And if we neglect one and overemphasize the other, then I believe we should be preaching a different gospel. The true gospel is rooted in the cross, but is evidenced by the signs and wonders. And then the fifth and last area is in chapter 12, the passage which was read to us just now. The famous passage that refers to the thorn in the flesh. And I call this human pride, the area of human pride. There have been many different interpretations of the thorn in the flesh. Many have thought it to refer to some illness that Paul had. Some have thought it was glaucoma or something, problem he had with his eyes. Some people interpret it as church wardens or PCCs. <laughs> some even as bishops, perhaps. <laughs> but I'm sure bishops have their interpretations of the thorn in the flesh. But I think the way to understand it, and it's very fascinating that this kind of interpretation is comparatively new. It's, I think, an interpretation in the 20th century. But when you go back and look at the Church Fathers, and also at the Reformers, the way they interpreted this verse, they interpreted it in this way. They believed it meant that this messenger of Satan was sent uh, by the Lord, allowed to come to Paul from the Lord, uh, not in the flesh, but for the flesh. Uh, it's only recent, comparatively recently, that the idea has been that this was something actually in his flesh, uh, in his physical body. And it may be that this is regarded being used as a text to try and uh, refute the new and wonderful revelation that God has given to his church about divine healing. But I don't think it means in the physical flesh I believe Paul here is using the word in the same way in which he uses the flesh in the epistle to the Romans and so on as a reference to his sinful nature. And therefore this thorn was allowed to come to him, whatever it was, and we don't need to conjecture exactly what it was, but the important thing to see, it was not in the flesh, but it was for the flesh, in order to subdue the flesh. And I'm sure Paul here is referring to human pride. He's talking about the great revelations he's had. And incidentally, he here is testifying to something that happened 14 years ago, and apparently he's being forced to say this, so here's some great thing that had happened that Paul had never told anyone for 14 years. We're usually on our feet within five minutes, if God blesses us. But Paul took 14 years to get this one out, and in fact he says here there are things that he said uh, that were said to me that I, I can't tell anyone. 
yet we blurt these things out uh, very, very quickly. We're so quick to testify. But I think the point of this passage, which is so relevant to all of us, I believe, is the danger of pride. John Wesley, who had to face many fanatical elements in the renewal in his day, used to speak of pride as the mother of fanaticism. And it's as true today as I believe it was in Wesley's day. The desire to be different, the lust for power, the pride of great spiritual achievements. And Paul says, when I was having these great revelations, there was a great danger that the pride in me would arise. And so the Lord allowed Satan to come and to give me that thorn for the flesh, to subdue the flesh, to prick the bubble of human pride. And I believe the Lord is constantly doing this to us. If you're in a time of great blessing, look out. Something probably is going to happen to you sooner or later. Sometimes it happens through circumstances. Sometimes the bubble of pride is pricked by our critics in the church who may be messengers of Satan, but the Lord allows them there in order to constantly prick us when we're liable to be proud of our achievements. I remember hearing some years ago Ern Baxter saying about, said that in his experience, that if he's going through an easy time, it's either rest and relief from the last calamity or it's preparation <laughs> for the next one. <laughs> And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But the important thing, and here I must end, the important thing I believe we learn from this is that in certain circumstances, God does allow Satan to do things to us. And therefore, it's not something, we mustn't make a rule that whenever Satan's on the scene, we resist him and cast him out and get delivered from him. It's not quite as easy as that. That's what Paul wanted. He prayed three times. Lord, take this thing away from me that Satan's doing to me. And the Lord said, no, it's there for a purpose. I'm allowing Satan to do this in order to humble you and to keep you humble. Well, let's come to know in these ways, and of course one could find many others in other parts of the scriptures, the way in which Satan is testing us and trying us in these days. Let us know our enemy, but much more wonderful than that, let us know the Lord's power and the spiritual weapons he has given to us to combat our enemy and see the victory. And we'll be thinking about that tomorrow morning. Shall we pray together? Lord, we're very aware at this time of the tremendous power of Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers working actively in the wounds in the body of Christ to cause them to become septic and not to be healed. Many ways in which we've seen this in recent months with the breakdown of the unity scheme, for covenanting for unity, and so many other ways with churches getting divided, people leaving and starting new churches and so on. In the midst of all this, Lord, this tremendous activity of Satan. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you did defeat the power of Satan at the cross, and in Jesus Christ we do have victory over those powers. So we pray we may not be ignorant of his devices, 
But knowing them and knowing our enemy, we may come to know you, Lord, and your power and your grace in our lives. So bless us, humble our pride, and teach us in every way the way to walk in you and the way of victory over Satan's power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.